Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and let us consider, in the time we have, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We have read this morning Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. We have read Galatians 1, 11 through 24. In both places we saw the historical account of his conversion. And how the Lord Jesus Christ arrested his greatest enemy and turned him into his greatest apostle. What a transformation. There's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. I'm thankful when God tells us why he elected a man. You're not going to find that very often in the Bible. But you're going to find why Jesus, why God and the Lord Jesus Christ elected Saul of Tarsus and put him in the ministry. So that we would have a public demonstration of the love of God for sinners and we would never be discouraged that we're too sinful for Jesus Christ to save. That's why He was saved. That's why He was put in the ministry. To give us a pattern so that we could believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we have some precious words of His written to Timothy about the Lord's work in his life. Let me read them to you. I'm going to start at verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant, with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What a glorious testimony of Saul of Tarsus, who when he wrote this was our beloved brother Paul, as Peter would call him, who when he wrote this was the apostle to the Gentiles, our teacher in verity and truth. I want to start at verse 11, where it says, as he concludes a sentence, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. God chose Paul to be given the gospel in a degree and a measure, especially as it pertains to Gentiles, that he hadn't given others. He entrusted Paul to reveal things about the Jews and the Gentiles being united in one body. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that. We want to recognize what the Lord did for Paul because it's emphasized so much in the New Testament. I've already said this morning, his conversion on the road to Damascus 
is given three times. And here's the grace of God magnified that the God of heaven would reach down and forgive the man who was his greatest enemy, the one who did the most damage to the name of Jesus Christ, the one who persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ the most. He reached down and saved him and then put him in the ministry. That is the God we worship, the only wise God, to whom belongs honor and glory forever and ever, because he was able to take his greatest enemy and make him his greatest servant. We're told details about Saul's conversion, probably more than all the other conversions in the New Testament combined, if you think about the details of them. When we think about his name, his father, his birth, his city of origin, his citizenship, how he was trained, where he went to school, what his occupation was, how much he hated Jesus Christ, what he did in his hatred of Jesus Christ, and what he did after he was converted, we're told more about Paul than anyone else, and all others combined, if you'll think about it. Because it's so rich. It's so rich. We love Mary Magdalene and God's grace toward her, but look at the richness that he showed toward the Apostle Paul. The conversion of Paul is a pattern for all of us. We should never be discouraged, never be deterred, never be intimidated about confessing our sins and running to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if He could forgive Saul of Tarsus, He can forgive you. He can forgive me. We had a parable last week about the mercy of God. It was illustrated to us by a shepherd pursuing one sheep, though he has 99 safe at home. It was illustrated by a housewife seeking one lost coin, though she still had nine. It was illustrated to us by a father who was waiting and ran to meet the son that repented. Those were parables. No parable this morning. I have history. I have the history of God's Word in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. A real man with a real birthplace, with a real piece of paper that gave his citizenship, with a real life, with real hatred for Jesus Christ, and yet a real salvation of him. And he became the greatest apostle and our apostle since we are Gentiles. There's no reason for us ever to hesitate in running to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a lie of the devil to think that he won't, won't receive you. And if you would lift up the shield of faith, you can quench that fiery dart. And the shield of faith should be your faith in this story that I tell you. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Verse 11 told us that according to the blessed God, Paul had committed to him the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul boldly preached that gospel. It amazed people who had known how zealous Paul was in opposing and fighting that gospel to find out that he was now preaching it. What a story. What a conversion. But God had given him something special. And that was to be the custodian of the gospel to the Gentiles. And to raise up men who in turn would ordain others and who would in turn put their hands on others that were able to teach to perpetuate the gospel of Jesus Christ in the earth. Right. You know, when you look at that 11th verse, we have a couple combinations 
of nouns and adjectives that are precious. It says, according to the glorious gospel. How glorious is the gospel to you this morning? Is it merely the gospel? Do you know what the word means? It means good news. It means glad tidings. Good news has come to you about something that was done for you. And it's called the glorious gospel. Is it glorious to you? You need to ask yourself that question and you need to answer it. And may God help us today, every single one of us, to believe that the gospel is the glorious gospel. Paul called it the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Is God blessed to you? Is He the blessed God? Or is He just God? How dear is He to you? Do you know what He's done for you? Do you know how great He is? Do you know He's the King eternal? Immortal? Invisible? The only wise God. Do you know that? Is He blessed to you? You know, He's God Almighty to Abraham. Abraham knew Him as God Almighty. Moses had more revealed to Him and knew Him as Jehovah. I am that I am. We know Him in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are blessed. Amen. Do you rejoice that you know the Gospel? Last Sunday we sang a song. I was going to sing it this morning, but didn't want to bore any of you with repetition. Wouldn't have bored me at all. We sang a song, Jesus Saves. It begins with the words, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That's taken from Psalm 89, a messianic prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 15, where it says, the people that have heard the joyful sound. And it's describing gospel times and gospel blessings. And we have heard that joyful sound. And we ought to rejoice in the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That gospel has been committed to us to defend it. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth, brethren. It should be glorious to you. You should love it. You should learn it. You should know it. You should defend it. We should live it. Believe it. And teach it as we have opportunity. Paul did. And so he introduces our few verses with this 11th verse as he closes out a sentence by describing the gospel as glorious, by describing his God as blessed, and by stating that he had been entrusted as the custodian, teacher and defender of this gospel. Now he's going to say more. We come to the twelfth verse. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Here is Saul of Tarsus, also called Paul, thanking the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a man that blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. This is the man that made others to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. He beat men and women in every synagogue. He imprisoned them and hauled them to Jerusalem. He testified against them to the death. Now he's thanking Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. What changes a man from having no place in his life for Jesus Christ to thanking Christ Jesus 
and then burning himself out for Jesus Christ. What causes that change? The exceeding, abundant grace of God that we're about to get to. But just to look at those words and see Paul thanking Jesus Christ is precious. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me. Paul knew where his abilities came from. Paul knew where his strength came from. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15.10, and you know these words, I labored more abundantly than they all. But before he got to those words, he says, it was the grace of God that was bestowed upon me. That grace was not bestowed in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I. Paul never wanted to take the credit for it, but the grace of God that was with me. He knew who had made the difference. God had enabled him and made him great in the kingdom of heaven. It says here, For he hath counted me faithful. For that he counted me faithful. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. I understand these words this way, and I don't care how small of a minority I might be in, because I'm going to read the Bible and I preach the Bible. I understand these words to recognize that Saul of Tarsus was born again before the road to Damascus. He will testify in his own words throughout the book of Acts that with pure conscience he served God from his fathers. God counted him faithful because with the light Paul had, Paul was very faithful. He's he's going to tell us in the next verse to help us understand this. He's going to say in the next verse, I obtained mercy because what I did, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I did not know that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God and the Lord's Messiah. He counted me faithful. Paul was zealous. You read his testimony and you read the description given of him as a persecutor of Christians, not knowing any better, thinking he could establish his own righteousness through the law of Moses, hating the name of Jesus Christ. He was most zealous. He said he was exceeding zealous. And when it says here, he counted me faithful. And this counting me faithful, putting me into the ministry... He hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful. God enabled Paul, set him up, and made him a great apostle for the faithfulness that he had shown in what he did understand. And that's comfort to us. Sometimes we're converted from things, lies, later in life, and we wonder, why did the Lord leave me for not show me the truth for so long? What does the Lord think about that time that I served Him in ignorance or in error? And here's the comfort. If you're in error because God has not brought you the teacher or taken the scale from your eyes for you to see the truth, He can still count you faithful. I hope you'll remember back to this past Wednesday evening when I mentioned King Asa of Judah. The Bible says of him his heart was perfect with the Lord, though he did not remove the high places. Yet his heart was perfect with God. See, there's a man that God did not show him, and we don't know the details, but the high places remained. He wasn't perfect in his revival, yet his heart was perfect. 
Because God saw his zeal with what he did know. Are you thankful this morning for what Jesus Christ has done for you? Some of you come from split families, we'll call them. Where your siblings have no care for the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not fear God. They do not love Jesus of Nazareth. They do not mind and care about heavenly things. They don't care about truth. What made that difference? I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knew where that difference came from. And you better be thankful this morning, or the God of heaven is most just in grinding you to powder, as He says He will in Deuteronomy 28, 46, and 47, if you're not thankful for the abundance of all things, and the thing you should be most thankful for is the difference Jesus Christ has made in your life. Be thankful this morning. Rejoice. Look at those words and enjoy them with our brother Paul. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the difference is a difference that he made. Saul was born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, what we call Turkey, across the Mediterranean Sea from Jerusalem and Israel. He was born a Roman citizen. He tells us that. We know lots of details about Paul when we don't know them about many others. And I'm going to bounce back and forth between Saul and Paul because I'm not smart enough to keep them straight in conversation when I'm going through his conversion. He was called Saul because that was his Hebrew name. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you were from the tribe of Benjamin and want to be named after the greatest member of your tribe, what would you be called? Saul. Because Saul was the first king of Israel and from the tribe of Benjamin. That was his Hebrew name. And so he is known by his Hebrew name Saul all the way up to Acts 13. When he's in the island of Pathos and he meets a man named Sergius Paulus, and Luke, who's writing, stops calling him Saul and starts calling him Paul, which is his Roman name. He would have had two names, a Hebrew name and a Roman name, and so he's Saul and Paul. And as soon as he begins going to the Gentiles and preaching to them on his first evangelistic trip, his name switches in Acts chapter 13 from Saul to Paul, and from then on he's always called Paul because he's the apostle of the Gentiles. And so out among the Gentiles, he uses his Roman name, Paul, that was accepted by Romans and would serve him in preaching the gospel to Gentiles. What was his trade? He was a tent maker. So, like a good Jewish boy, he had been given a trade, a transferable skill. Did he ever use that transferable skill? Did it ever serve him well? Especially in Acts chapter 18, we're told that he he joined Aquila and Priscilla in making tents in the city of Corinth. He was sent early across the Mediterranean Sea to go to school with Gamaliel being his tutor and teacher. He tells the Jews in his testimony, I was brought up in this city. Born in Tarsus, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. And if we read more about him, we find out that he was a rising star in the Jews' religion. He had contact with the chief priests. They employed him as their messenger of ill will to the Christians wherever he was willing to go. He was given authority by them. He sat with councils and knew the councils. 
He was young. He was a rising star. He was a Pharisee. I find this precious. Who were the greatest enemies of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry but the Pharisees? And Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. He hadn't joined them himself, but his father had been one. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is able to take a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee and make him an apostle. They glorified God in me. I glorify God in Saul of Tarsus. He was trained strictly in the Jews' religion. Gamaliel, when he opened his mouth, it was like E.F. Hutton in America, based on our foolish advertisements. When Gamaliel spoke, the other leaders in Israel listened. You can read about it in Acts chapter 5, when Gamaliel spoke. He was well regarded by all. To say his name, that he had been Paul's tutor, or Saul's tutor, was to bring reputation to his name. He was a great defender of Jewish tradition, yet the Lord Jesus Christ converted him to write the epistle of Galatians and Hebrews, in which he overthrew the old covenant and introduced the new covenant, overthrew the Jewish legalizers, and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was the one that presents in Hebrews the preeminence of Jesus Christ over anything from the Old Testament. God raised up Saul of Tarsus for that perfect position of being the apostle of the Gentiles and for correcting the errors of the Jews. Peter had his own ministry, but it was a different kind of a ministry from Paul. Peter hadn't been trained at all, except how to mend nets and fish, which didn't serve him all that well when he was trying to refute Jews. The apostle Paul was given that task by the Lord. That's why he wrote those two epistles, Galatians, to correct the Judaizers from affecting Gentile churches and the book of Hebrews, which was written to Jews, to keep them from going back to the Jews' religion. God used Paul's training. Let's come to verse 14. Verse 13. Verse 13. He has said in verse 12 that he thanks Christ Jesus for enabling him, counting him faithful, and putting him into the ministry. And he says, here's why it is such a great thing who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know better. I did not know better. He wasn't rebelling against knowledge. He was in ignorance. He had simply been covered up and couldn't see, couldn't hear, and couldn't understand, like much of his countrymen, like many of his countrymen. He prays in Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now that Israel, he has already narrowed down. It's not the whole nation. It's elect Israel within the nation that he would be praying for because he has already taught that part of the nation is not elect. Only those that are of the Jews are God's vessels of mercy. And he's praying for them that they might receive the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and be saved from the ignorance of going about to establish their own righteousness. He was in that condition. He knew how to pray in Romans 10. He had once been there. It says he was a blasphemer, who was before a blasphemer. Some of you may think back and remember times that you've used God's name in vain in your past life. And you may wonder if God's able to forgive you. 
He is able to forgive you. Paul was a blasphemer. Paul did not blaspheme Jehovah. Paul did not blaspheme God. The Jews didn't go around blaspheming God. He blasphemed the Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the name he hated. That's the name he persecuted. And that's the name that he caused other men to blaspheme. He wasn't content with just blaspheming himself. When he caught Christians, he would induce them by beatings or imprisonment or death to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus of Nazareth was an imposter, a false Messiah, and he did everything in his power to get others to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. He was a blasphemer. When he, was, when he stood before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said, King Agrippa, I thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Right. I thought with myself I ought to do many things against Him. He was a blasphemer against the Lord Jesus Christ because he didn't see Him as the Son of God. You know, the Bible tells us that the preaching of Jesus Christ would be a stumbling block to the Jews. And they would trip right over Him. He was a stumbling block to Paul, and Paul tripped right over him. So he was a blasphemer. And Paul is trying to tell you how exceeding abundant the grace of God was in his life because he had been a blasphemer, and now he's a preacher. That's a big transformation. It says he was a blasphemer and a persecutor. He caused trouble wherever he could to the Lord Jesus Christ and His people and His churches. That's why Jesus said to on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He was so exceedingly mad, he told King Agrippa that I would persecute them even to strange cities. Cities I'd never been in before. I'd travel anywhere if I could get my hands on a Christian and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial for heresy and put them to death. And I gave my testimony against them. That's why the Bible says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughters. He was actually killing Christians. Not just Stephen. Although that was his first one that we're told about. He was injurious. That makes us think of Stephen. You know, as we're reading through Acts chapter 7, and Stephen gives that glorious sermon that he does in that place, and we read about them stopping up their ears and running on Stephen with one accord and stoning him to death. And the witnesses that had brought the false accusations against him laid their coats down at the feet of one Saul of Tarsus, a young man. That's where we first meet him, at the death of Stephen. That wonderful deacon from the church in Jerusalem. Paul could not see. Saul could not see. Excuse me, let me call him Saul. It says that he was engaged in debate with men of Cilicia. Acts chapter 6. Paul was very likely one of those men because Paul was from Cilicia. Paul was very very likely one of the men that debated with Stephen. They saw his mighty signs and wonders. They heard his irrefutable defense of the gospel. They saw his face shining, as it were, the face of an angel. 
and they heard him testify as the bone, as the stones and rocks are busting his body, that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ standing on the right hand of power. Saul heard and saw all that and still consented to his death. Now is that blindness? That is blindness worse than Pharaoh who took his army down to the Red Sea. He was injurious. He consented and put to death Stephen and Paul remembered that and mentions it several times. And Luke mentions it uh, several times. It says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the church and Paul made havoc. Those are the words chosen in Acts chapter 8. He made havoc of the church. He went everywhere he could and tore up churches, messed them up, broke up families, put men to death, put men and women bound into prison. He didn't care what sex you were. He had no mercy because he was defending the tradition of the Jews against the Lord Jesus Christ. He beat them in every synagogue. And we could go to the verses and look at these places, but we don't have time nor is it necessary. You know these things are taught in the Bible. He not only beat them, He not only imprisoned them, He put them to death. He was a murderer, and He was a murderer of Christians in the name of religion. You have never sinned to match Saul of Tarsus. He was injurious. He was a blasphemer. Paul's talking about himself in verse 13. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And I was injurious. I hurt people. I hurt lots of people. I hurt women. I killed them. I broke up families. I killed parents. I did it all. I was injurious to the church of God. And I was a blasphemer against the Lord Jesus Christ. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He didn't know any, he didn't know better. You know, he was rebellious against the things that he could see. The pricks that he was getting, he was rebellious against them and kicked against them. You would think that he would have noticed something different about Stephen, but he didn't. And you know, the Lord Jesus Christ came along and gave the gift of the greatest apostle to the Gentiles, to Saul of Tarsus. And the Bible is so precious in Psalm 68 and 18 when it says, He received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also. Saul of Tarsus was one rebellious man kicking against the pricks. But the Lord put him into the ministry and made him into a great apostle. But he had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious to the church of God. Now, verses 12 and 13 are one sentence where Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who made me an apostle, Timothy, who had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. And he's going to explain the basis for that in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. I love this verse. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. He doesn't just say, the grace of the Lord gave me faith and love. He doesn't just say, the abundant grace of our Lord gave me faith and love. He says, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. Do you all understand that? Do I understand that? If it had not been for the exceeding abundant grace of God, He would have let us go our merry way because we chose that way ourselves. 
We defied Him. We refused Him. We didn't want the constraints of His law, His Word, His Gospel in our lives. We rebelled against knowledge, many of us. But thanks be to God, there is exceeding abundant grace that reaches forth the mighty arm of God and saves and arrests men from their course. The Bible says where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You know, God gave the law to show us just how sinful we are. And when the law makes us exceeding sinful, as it should, yet the grace of God is greater. And it saves Saul of Tarsus, and it can save you. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. With faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. A short little English lesson. We have at the end of this sentence, which is in Christ Jesus. The verb is a singular verb, is. If it was a plural verb, it would be are, which are in Christ Jesus. It's which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, what is in Christ Jesus is not the faith and not the love. It's God's grace from earlier in the sentence, because it's a singular verb requiring one noun, not two. And here's how, here's how you should understand it. God's grace, and the whole New Testament tells us this, God's grace given to us is in Christ Jesus. Because without Christ Jesus, God cannot show grace to sinners. It's always in Christ Jesus. God's grace finds its basis for showing His demerited favor to us through Jesus Christ and what He did for us. We were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began so that God could show His grace toward us. But that grace brought Paul two things he needed. Faith and love. And it brings those same two things to all of us. Here was a man that he just said, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. What did God give him by grace in Christ Jesus? Faith. He gave him faith. Faith is a gift of God's grace to us. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you believe that He is Lord and you live like it, it's because the exceeding abundant grace of God gave you faith. Paul was ignorant in unbelief and a blasphemer. Now he's a believer and a powerfully strong one at that. He had been a persecutor and injurious. He hurt people and he enjoyed hurting people. God gave him love. This is a beautiful verse. It is the exceeding abundant grace of God that changes men's lives from being blasphemers and unbelievers to being believers and preachers. From being injurious, hateful, and selfish to being loving and kind and caring. Was there anyone ever more caring than the Apostle Paul? I will gladly spend and be spent. Though the more I love you, the less I be loved. Is that a pretty loving man? Where did that come from? Grace of God. Titus chapter 3 said, Paul writing to Titus, the other minister that he wrote epistles to, he said, for we also ourselves were, were sometime disobedient, foolish, serving divers lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. It changed Paul and Titus. This is a beautiful verse. 
Are you thankful this morning for the exceeding abundant grace of God? If you have a care for the other saints in this church, if you want to serve them, if you love them, if you pray for them, if you forgive them, if you overlook their little idiosyncrasies that drive you nuts, it's because God put grace in you and it's exceeding abundant grace to give you faith and love to do that. And and here's the example, Saul of Tarsus. Faith and love are the gifts of God's grace to His elect. And His grace is in Christ Jesus. God could not give faith and love to a man without Christ Jesus having paid for it legally. That's what the verse is teaching. And we know that because of the little word is. Every word of God is pure. Go home and look up, go home and punch in to a Bible search program, which is. There's 255 occurrences. And you can go look them all up and find out that when you've got a which is, it's referring to one thing. Go home and punch in which are, and you'll find 177, and you'll find out that when you have that plural verb, it's referring to two or more things. And I'm I'm going over that because I want you to understand this verse. Which is in Christ Jesus is God's grace. Does it, does this sound familiar? Writing to the same man in in the next epistle, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's where God's grace is, and it's that grace that gives us faith and love. I defy those men that teach we need to exercise faith in order to get God's grace. If they're going to teach that, then they need to teach we have to love before we get God's grace. But when I read 1 John, that wonderful epistle, it says, He that believeth is born of God, and he that loveth hath passed from death into life because he loves the brethren. Faith and love are the gifts of God's grace and are the evidence of eternal life. And Paul was so thankful for those two things because it's faith and love that overthrew him being a blasphemer, being a persecutor, and being injurious. Now he was a preacher instead of a blasphemer. What caused that difference? Faith. Now he was a lover of men. Do you want to know how much he loved men? I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have continual sorrow in my heart for for my brethren, for for Israel. I'm, I'm corrupting the passage. It's Romans chapter 9, the first five verses. For I I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That is a loving man. And where did that come from? From a man that that was hauling men and women into prison, beating them in every synagogue, and putting them to death? The exceeding abundant grace of God. Through Christ Jesus. No wonder he could say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is a faithful saying. You can depend on this because it's true. This is worthy of all acceptation. It is good enough and valuable enough for you to pay attention to it. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. You should accept this saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Jesus didn't come for the righteous. 
He didn't come for the pretty people. He came for the sinners. And He came and got Paul, who was the chief of sinners. And don't try to tell me that you're the chief of sinners. Saul of Tarsus is the chief of sinners. Because he is first in line as the greatest sinner Jesus Christ saved as a pattern for you and me. Next verse. Verse 16. How be it? For this cause I obtain mercy. And I love it when the Bible tells us why God saved a man. You know, he usually doesn't. He just says, for his own pleasure. But here he gives us the reason. Howbeit, for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. That word first does not mean Paul was first in time or first in order, but rather the foremost one. If you were to list all the sinners, Paul's first. Because he's the greatest sinner. That's what he's presenting to you. He wasn't first in time. Stephen beat him by a long shot. This is first in sinfulness. Of whom I am chief. That's what he's explaining in verse 16. And for this cause, God saved me, the chief of sinners. I'm first in the line of sinners. So that everyone coming after me that wants to believe on Jesus Christ will not be discouraged, will not be deterred, will not be intimidated, will not be frightened, will not question whether Jesus Christ is merciful enough to save them because He saved even me. That's why we have 1 Timothy 1.16. He is a pattern or an example for us to trust in Jesus Christ. God's grace is so great, no matter what you've done, you can run to Him and be forgiven. Because He forgave Saul of Tarsus. You know, there's lots of faithful sayings in the world. Hail Mary. Not very faithful. I meant to say there are lots of sayings in the world. There's only some faithful sayings. Hail Mary. We have Abraham to our father. The Jews love to go around quoting that one. That didn't do them any good. Jesus said, you're of your father the devil. Both of those statements are in John chapter 8. The Muslims want us to believe there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Now that's not a faithful saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That is a faithful saying. After Paul explained why he had been saved, to give you an example. Saul of Tarsus was allowed to run wild in persecuting Christians and then was saved to be an apostle for you. So that you would never doubt or never worry or never wonder if God could forgive you. Because if He forgave Saul, He can forgive you. Verse 17, Our brother Paul, and I hope you love him. I hope you love him for what God did to a man's heart and want to be like him. He said, be ye followers of me. We ought to follow his example. He bursts into praise to God for what he's just told Timothy. Though this is a personal letter, dear Timothy, well, it doesn't start out quite that way, but you know what I mean. Paul, and it starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, unto Timothy, my son. But it's a personal letter. And after explaining to Timothy what God had done to him, with his exceeding abundant grace, he just wants to praise the God of heaven. And here's how he does it in verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, 
invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the middle of a letter, he has this praise to the God of heaven for his exceeding abundant grace toward him and concludes it with an amen. Do you write that way? Are you so excited and so thankful about what God has done for you that you love to write statements of praise about the God of heaven, even in the middle of personal correspondence? Now, unto the King Eternal. You know, the Bible says He is from everlasting to everlasting. If He's the King Eternal, then He's been a King from everlasting. If He's an immortal King, He is a King to everlasting. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, unto the King Eternal, immortal, invisible. You cannot see Him. Because He's an invisible spirit. But He's created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. They were created for His pleasure and He rules over all. The only wise God. I love my brother Paul. Allah is no God at all, let alone a wise one. To the only wise God be glory and honor forever and ever. Have you glorified and honored The King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God this week, this past week. Will you this coming week? Or are you too busy, too distracted, too earthly minded to want to bless and praise the King Eternal? Paul, after describing what he had been and what God did to him by exceeding abundant grace, had to praise the King Eternal And say that he deserves glory and honor forever and ever for his greatness, his majesty, and his grace and kindness toward me. And he says, Amen, before he can go on and keep writing Timothy. You've all been given the grace of God. You are sitting here this morning under the sound of the grace of God. Paul said, The grace that was bestowed upon me was not bestowed in vain. God did not waste the grace that He showed me in saving me from being that blasphemer, that persecutor, and that injurious, hateful man. The grace wasn't wasted because I labored more abundantly than they all. Is that true of you and me? To what degree are we wasting the grace of God? To what degree are we squandering God's grace? Is the truth of the glorious gospel... Is the praise of the blessed God? Is the memory and reflection on the exceeding abundant grace of our Lord the things that please you most? Are they the things you talk about? Are they the things you love to sing about? Or are you all caught up in this world and these sound like dull topics to you? He used that grace his whole life. When God poured out that grace upon him, he ran a race. And he ran it diligently from that point on. I finished my course. He fought a good fight. And he kept the faith. That faith that had been committed to him, he didn't lose it, didn't squander it, and it wasn't taken away. He pursued it with all his might. And they glorified God in me. 
Can we glorify God in what He did to Saul of Tarsus? The Lord wanted to tell us about it over and over again. And I'll ask you a second time. Do men glorify God in you? Is your life so changed that men glorify God in you? Oh, what a delightful thing. If we could let our light so shine before men that they would glorify our Father in heaven, that there had been exceeding abundant grace in our lives, and they would glorify God in us, every single one of you, and then all of us together. There's every reason for sinners to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no reason to ever wait to think, when I get better, I'll run to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came into this world to save sinners. Run as you are, because there was a man caught before who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. But he obtained mercy, and the grace of God was exceeding abundant in his life with faith and love. There's no reason why we should ever delay repenting and running to the Lord Jesus Christ. May he bless us this day to be like our brother Paul in a lover of God and a servant for the rest of our lives. Amen.